Hi, this is Bob Wells here, and welcome to Undercurrent Stories. This is the show where we hear about people's interests and uncover some fascinating stories at the same time. I hope you enjoy today's show. In today's show, I'm once again delighted to be joined by Colin Crabb. Colin is a former Formula One team owner, a racing driver, and an eminent restorer and dealer of historic classic racing cars. In this interview, Colin talks about how he became known as one of the last privateers in Formula One, setting up his own team for the 1969 and 1970 Formula One seasons, with the first race being the Monaco Grand Prix. So it's good to be back talking with you again, Colin. One thing we didn't discuss last time was your racing career. Could you just tell us a little about your racing, and particularly the Formula One team that you got together? It was 60 years ago, which is rather terrifying too. And there were four of us who thought it'd be quite fun to get involved in, in, in Formula One. Two of us were already involved in historic racing. And we thought, why not? If Alexander Heskers could do it, I can do it. And they were all quite wealthy and they put their fingers in their pockets and they produced the odd pound note. And if I, if I, if I tell you that a brand new Cosworth engine, which then was, I suppose, three years old, we're talking about 1969, I mean, a brand new unit was 7,000 pounds. You know, a unit today is half a million. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous. Uh, we, we went, we decided the first race we'd enter was Monaco, but we needed a car. So I looked up the motorsport, or was it maybe a Pepe Autosport that week, I suppose, and there, looking at me, was a Cooper Maserati. Just about in in legal, you know, it was a three-litre car. Yeah. And we hadn't gone down to one-and-a-half-litre formula yet. And this thing had three engines, it had ten wheels. I've never seen piles of spares like you've never seen. And it was £3,000. It's really not a lot of money when you see it for what we got. And I was, of course, a Maserati lunatic, having had older Maseratis. And this was the most beautifully made car. The whole thing from end to end. Just by looking at it, it ought to have won a Grand Prix. But of course it was out of date and yeah. other excuses, so on and so forth. Anyway, we bought the thing and I was waiting from four over midsummer from sort of half past four onwards in the morning for this thing to arrive, which it duly did. And I got very excited. It got unloaded from the lorry. And the lorry pushed off, and I waved goodbye to it. And I leapt into the car. Well, that was a severe error. I couldn't leap out of it again. And I was stuck absolutely, utterly and completely. And I had to wait for the village to wake up to pull me out. So how long were you in the car for, Colin? An hour. Sitting just outside this garage. Yeah. Um, so that really put pay to my ideas of actually driving a Formula One car in a Formula One race. I did, in fact, later on, I bought two or three BRM chassis. They had engines which 
went and did other things. I never, I never got the engines, but I got, I got the chassis, and I built a Formula Five Thousand car out of one of these chassis, and I drove that, but it was no fun. You know, it was put, we put a Ford V8 engine in the back of this thing. It never, it never went properly. Well, you mean he didn't go particularly fast? It wasn't fast. It, it handled quite well. Yeah. But I was too big for it, even then. So, so <laughs> I couldn't get my feet on the pedals of the usual sort of drama. Uh, I, had a, I had a go at Silverstone once on a BRDC open day in a sort of mock-up Formula One car which they have, which they could lengthen or widen or whatever. So I had it widened and lengthened and got in it. And, oh, that was fun. Yeah. But I did learn later, never, ever, ever ask a professional driver to drive you. Because it's a joke. Because he'll, he'll think he's very clever. And he'll either do what Wizzo Williams did with me. He took me out in, in, the, in one of the... The learn, learner, uh, were they Ford Escorts? I can't remember what they were, but they were something like that. And, and he rolled the thing at Woodcote with me in it. Wow. And apart from I, I got that awful fright, um, I never, I've never, ever, ever had a, anybody drive me in any form of sports car ever again. Mm. So with our lovely Cooper, the thing was then to get somebody to drive it. So my old friend Neil Corner was summoned. He, he of fame in, histor- in historic cars. But he was a very wealthy chap. He could have afforded and I couldn't. And I, and I said, do you want, do, would you like to drive this thing on a... On a if, you, if you break it, you fix it. Um, that was the deal. That's very important. And see if you like it. So we went to Madrid which were there where there was a, what I would call a secondary Formula One race. There was a mixture of Formula One and Formula Two, Formula A, Formula 5000, Formula Two, you name it, it was all there. Big grid of about 30 cars. And he hopped in the car and he came six. That's pretty good. As he'd never driven the thing before and he'd never driven a Formula One car before, it wasn't bad. Mm. Okay, the car was a bit out of date. So how many cars would have taken part in that race? I think about 20, I think. So coming six, first time, was pretty good. Well, I mean, it was... It exceeded your expectations. Uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. he, he made it very, very well. And he didn't cost me anything either, which was better yet. <laughs> so anyway, having, having sort of decided the car actually went, the next thing was to try and get more power out of it. So I started up to BRM. And they had an absolutely marvellous engine man who came from Vanmore. And he worked on the thing for a couple of months. We got about another 30 horsepower out of the engine. So while we weren't getting the power we should have had, you know, if we'd had a modern car, but when we went motor racing... Can I just interrupt you a second, Colin? For those people who don't know an awful lot about horsepower, an extra 30... Horsepower. Does that mean that the acceleration improves dramatically? Or I think everything, everything, everything improves, improves dramatically. Yeah. As long as you don't blow it up. Yeah. Um, but but the, the, the Cooper produced about 400. 
the uh, four, 400, say, 7,000 RPM, the most wonderful noise, it was called the V12. The Cosworth, a V8, produced 460, 480, depending on the, 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 which, which series it was. So whatever happened, we were, we were down on power. But it was enough fun to, to, have, to have, you know, to, to, to amuse us. Anyway, at that stage, I thought we might as well, because I couldn't get in the thing. Neil had done his run, so I rang up my old mate from previous times, Vic Elford, who I, of course, got to know very well in the sports car days of, of driving big sports cars. And he said he'd love to, love to drive the car. And he said he'd won, he'd won the Monte Carlo rally on two occasions, and he thought he'd love to have a go in a Formula One car at Monaco. It sort of filled his book. So we, there we were, we had the team. I'll never forget this. And we went to Monaco. It was the Formula One car on a trailer, four-wheel trailer, being pulled behind the company Yellow Transit. It was a pretty seedy-looking lot we were. <laughs> and accommodation was impossible. So I eventually, I got accommodation through some pal of mine, which consists of an incredibly grand, uh, sort of middle of the 19th century house in the middle of Monaco. So I was very happy. We, we were content. Yeah. And my, my team of mechanics, my father, he didn't know the first thing about mechanics, but he got a he got a ticket. Um, something called Andy Clive, who was a merchant banker in London. He knew nothing about cars, but he was a pal of mine. And Cyril Atkins, who had been head mechanic at BRMs, and a another. So we were not quite as well equipped. Is when you go and look out at a modern, current Formula One race, there are about thirty mechanics per car. And how, how did the other teams view you you guys coming in? Oh, I thought it was a bit of a joke, really. And, and and we were a bit of a joke, but we got less and less of a joke as the season went on. I read somewhere that you were one of the last privateers in Formula One. I think I was the last privateer in Formula One. I know he's only one of the last. Um... The, the great privateer of all, of course, Jody just pulled out, which which were, which was Rob Walker. So we had Rob Walker. He 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 pulled out, and therefore the, it was really only me left in. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting that you originally wanted to actually race the cars yourself, but obviously because of your stature somebody else had. How did you feel when, when you weren't actually doing the racing? Oh, I was extremely upset, really, because I hadn't, I, I hadn't worked the fact that I was too big to drive a Formula One car. I mean, statistics, six foot six, guards measurement, <laughs> 17 and a half stone, that's about the size of two Formula One drivers <laughs> now. Um, it was it was just a, a it was just a no go. It was yeah. just something that was never going to happen. And I did 
miss my racing hugely when we're driving myself. Because I'd, you know, I'd, I'd driven cars for years, I'd always had very fast cars. I'd, I'd done rallies, I'd done this, that, and the other, and I reckon I knew how to drive. Yeah. So does everybody in Formula One. Except for a few people like a dame, and I won't. What does it feel like driving a racing car? Oh, danger never worried me. Did it not? No, 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 danger I couldn't care less about. I had, I had two instances in the GT, in the GT40, uh, which, which in fact, we were very successful in our GT40, actually. Uh, I mean, I came, he came a fifth and a sixth, and the sort of results we were getting became seventh in the, in the uh, 12 hour race at Reims. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was very successful. Yeah, yeah. But it was big enough. And I remember we took the car, the first time I, we took it to South Africa. There was a Springbok series. And I must be, as it was all paid for, a holiday in South Africa seemed a frankly good idea. And we stayed for three months. And we were looked after completely for three months. And it was most enormous amount of fun. Um, I was sort of midfield. We, we were a sort of mixture of cars. I mean, there were very fast Porsches, driven by, by a chap who's just died, actually, called Mike Deudi, a very, very good driver, a New Zealander. We had this GT40, which I bought, second-hand, but, I mean, it was only a year old. They only just come out that the previous year. And the first thing we had to do, because I was far too big for it, like hard, too big for everything sort of thing, but this time I, I could sit in it, but my head went through the roof. Really? So, in, so we had a... We took it down to Ford Advanced Vehicles at Slough, who built the cars, and they built a thing like a pyramid on top of the on top of the so door. An extended roof. Yes. So you could fit it. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was known as my brain dome. And only one other person had a brain dome. I, that was Gander, Dan Gurney. Well, he was about nearly. But would that not slow the car down a bit? No. Not really. Aerodynamic. No, oh, no, just, no. just yeah. No, no, no. We had and we. We had terrific fun there. That was when, when I saw my late and very good friend Jackie's um, Jimmy Clark driving a Model T Ford into a swimming pool. Is that right? Not popular. He drove? We were at a party. Oh, okay. He thought he'd stir it up. He was full of witticisms. The people who owned the swimming pool were extremely pissed off, as you can imagine. Because I know what swimming pools are like to clean. Mm. And this was, uh, then, then I, I, then of course, classic, I find a Grand Prix Maserati from 1934, then I find another one from 1938, so I'm in seventh heaven. I buy so one. Maserati was your fa favourite car, was it? Well, Maserati was my favourite car, I suppose the car that I won the most races in, which was a three-litre birdcage, which was a car built in 19... I thought 1950... No, 1967. Yeah. And I was the only man, I think, who had the guts to ring up Maserati and talk to Mr. Maserati or Alfieri 
said, good afternoon. I said, my, my name's Colin Crabbe. Yes. I'd like to buy an old Maserati. You got me? Yes. What do you want? And I came back with this absolutely brand new Maserati, 700 quid. Really? Mm. Wow. And that was the original Mr. Maserati, wasn't it? Oh, God, yeah. No, no, I mean, it was, I mean, it was... The Maserati brothers. He was certainly a sort of senior man in the in in the business. Yeah. Um, and Alfieri, I think it was, I spoke to him at the time. But of course, then I then I went and raced historic races throughout the sixties. Um, well, I was reading in your book about the um, the London to Brighton. Oh, that's a very different thing. Yeah. I mean, if you were, I mean, I, I, I think I'm the only man who, who's quite happy to drive a 200 mile an hour GT40 or a 19 mile an hour Delahaye. A big range of speeds there, Colin. I got the most enormous pleasure out of driving something that was hugely complicated. And these Brighton cars I wanted were not the ones that did 60 miles an hour, which some of them did. Mercedes, for example. I wanted something with belts, chains, uh, very smelly, very slow, and looking like a carriage. So one of the original cars that was built? Yeah, and I, that's yeah. exactly what I had. Yeah. I bought in France, I bought an, an 1897 Delahaye, wow. which had all those attributes. It was, on a good day of the following wind, you'll get 25 out of it, I suppose. But his normal cruising speed is about 15 to 18. But I took it to Brighton on about eight different times. I failed to get there once, because I very early on, because I put it into reverse and it went straight into a tree. This was at the start in Hyde Park. That was unfortunate. Otherwise, the rest of the time, we got down there, no bother. Yeah. Great fun, jolly good car. I mean, I would. I miss not driving now almost more my ancient cars to, to, to the modern. Do you? Mm. Is, is that because you like the challenge of driving a rail car? I think it's a hell of a challenge. And the older the thing is, the more the bigger the challenge. Cars are pretty primitive then. Well, I guess all cars, you know, cars that were made originally like that, they're all, slightly, they're all quite different in the way they worked. Whereas now they're, they're all roughly the same, aren't they? They're very generic. Good point. Mm. They basically all had engines that worked more or less the same way as our, as our engines worked. One cylinder, two cylinder, three cylinder. That's rare. I had one three cylinder car. Um, and I bought, I bought a number of these cars, of course, over the years in South America, India. Yeah. We got a Napier out of India, which belonged to Maharaja of Jaipur, I think. No, it was great fun. So I did 24 Brighton runs. 24? Yep. Wow. So you can count down to sort of 28 years. And what about other other places like Goodwood? Did you did you do the stuff at Goodwood? No, 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 I beat Goodwood once. Yeah. Um, I've been to Goodwood once as a spectator, but I've never driven, I never raced at Goodwood. No. But, having said I'd never raced at Goodwood, 
Not only have I raced at Goodwood, but I've won at Goodwood, but it's not it's not in the records. Oh really? How did that happen? Because I raced in the last ever race meeting at Goodwood. But they and we were told we we senior members of the British Racing Drivers Club were told that if if, if we had driven at Goodwood, we would get free access to the. To the great party they have once a year in September, which we've just had. So that was the incentive. And when I I, I, I applied, I said I you know, I raced here in 1965, which I did. And they said, well, that's tough. <laughs> so I never went back. Going back to collecting cars, how how has it changed over the last 50 years? Oh, only in one way. It's called money. Price has gone up and up and up. I mean, what if I were to give you a sort of example? I had a, I bought a Testarossa Ferrari. All right, it was a sort of pretty shagged-out old thing, and I paid two thousand dollars for it. But it did happen to be the car that won Le Mans in nineteen seventy-nine. That's a sixty-nine. Yeah. Fifty-nine. Let's get this right. God, back, back. 1959, it's worth two and a half million pounds now. So even even taking into account inflation, it's relatively gone up. Oh, China. relatively. It's gone yeah. up hugely. Because, yeah. I mean, the, I got it. It was complete. It would have cost me a further 1,500 quid probably to restore it to the sort of pristine way it is yeah. now. What advice would you give to somebody who's interested in doing what you did in terms of going around the world collecting cars? Is it up, find is it another job. Find another job. It really has changed that much. I mean, I, I, I'm asked by lots of people every year, where do I look for old cars? Well, that was the question I was asking 50 years ago. Yeah. And I went to the places which had old cars, which people hadn't been to. I did Russia... Um, I did India, but there was nothing India. Somebody had already been through India. And I did America's cars to be found there still, but you won't get anything very good. And if something very good does turn up, these cars do turn up in auctions, but they're damnably expensive. And if you're being like me, and you pay, you know paid £27.10 for a nice Austin 7, I'm not going to be tempted to pay up to two and a half thousand quid for one. Yeah. I, I just, I, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid that the market for old cars, old cars is finished. The people, well, take Goodwood for a good example. There's about one race you could, for, for the lesser cars, which is, a, you wouldn't have sort of, Sunbeam Talbots or Morris Miners or Middies. You can race some modernish cars, but the rest of the cars there are mega, mega money. So, and people, and of course, if, if you've bought a car as a trophy, trophy car, I would call it in fact, you won't run it, you won't drive it. I mean, I wondered why my, my lovely Mercedes, which was the Grand Prix car, the one that took, took all the records and everything, uh, that 
well, I apart from selling it to my great friend Neil Corner, he, he nearly broke it up in the tunnel in Monte, Monte Carlo, but he luckily missed both ends. They spun it. I never spun it. I never spun it. I never had a moment's bother with that car. And I won everything I entered in it. Um, W125. Went to Japan. It was never used. It went back to England. Bernie had it. Somebody else had it over here. And then it was sold to Germany, and it has actually had a rebuild. Yeah. But just, but, and as far as I can make out, it's been driven at 40 miles an hour. Mm. They, were, they were very nice. They sent me a film of it, actually going up the hill at Goodwood. Yeah. One of the other aspects that I read in your book was um, you had a stint working Christie's. I had a stint working at Christie's, and I, I did enjoy I. First of all, I was paid far too much money, which was always nice. Because uh, I mentioned a sum, which I won't repeat to you, thinking I'd be thrown out. And they said, yes, that's fine. Um, and and I, <clears throat> the fun working for them was I, I took sales in Australia, New Zealand, Europe and, uh, and, and America. You know, so it was, it was good fun, and you were always put up at the best hotels, and you you didn't muck about. No, no. But this, this one one particular trip was has got. To so rather than sort of searching for cars, this was actually selling cars. Selling other people's yeah, cars. Yeah. But there is there's one sort of quite funny example. If I was detailed to go to to, to Australia, go to Australia, and they had a woman in charge of the office in Australia. And I discovered where my hotel was, and I said, no, I'm not staying there. Oh, but it's booked for you. I said, I'm not staying there. That's full of hookers, whores, anything I don't want to go there. It's just revolting. Oh, but the directors love it. I said, well, they can. And I said to the, to the taxi, I said, and it was very difficult any accommodation at all. I said, take me to the best hotel. And she took me to the Ritz-Carlton or somewhere, and extraordinary, I went in there and produced my Christie's card, no questions asked, and I was put in a suite about the size of this house, with a bottle of brandy open, waiting with a glass on the table. Wow. I've never had service ever like that. And then I, I got, made myself fairly unpopular. I rang the client, as opposed to the client getting hold of me. No, I get that wrong, I got that the wrong way around. The client had to ring me at the Ritz-Carlton, as opposed to me ringing the client at Wagga Wagga. Mm -hmm. That was not popular at headquarters, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. And how long did you work at Christie's for? Three years. Okay, you enjoy that, obviously. Well, I, enjoy, I sort of enjoyed it. It's, I enjoyed it because when I first went in, the market was hugely buoyant. It then did a U-turn and went right down. In the mid-90s, it just went right, bottomed out. Yeah. And I always said, well, it was because I joined it. <laughs> but it just did. It's one of these things that just went down. I had a huge, very successful sale of... First of all, directors are not allowed to sell their own cars. 
So I, I, I had a telephone call from an extremely nice man who was the nephew of a chap who I'd sold a car to 20 years before, which happened to be a, a London bus, double-decker, double 1905, the only one in the world. And he had it restored here in England, or in, 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 in the mid-60s, mid 1960s, in, in uh, spends no object. It was gorgeous. With sort of advertisements saying sort of boot polish and things on the side, and Bovril is good for you, and all that sort of thing. And wonderfully complicated. I never did see it drive, but you needed some three people on the gear lever to pull it. And only one, so I, got, I was in America, I got a telephone call from this chap, this man, and he said, You know the car you saw my son uncle? I said, The. Oh, what the, I said, the bus. It was always known as the bus. I said, yeah, I know it, I know it well. What's up? He said, it's mine now, and I've got to sell it. And I've got to sell it quick, I need the money. Will you give me $40,000 for it? I said, yes, I will. The in instant decision. It made 600 in the sale, 1,000. Did it? Thank you very much indeed. And and it was bought, an extraordinary thing actually. There were a lot of people interested in it, it cost like so many things, it was wonderful. It came back to Europe and is now in the, in the National Motor Museum in Holland. Is it so still around then? Oh yeah, very, very much so. Is it the only one of its type? I mean, I sold, the last, well I mean the last car I sold in auction was in fact my my, my Ferrari, which I'd found in Cuba, I'd kept, I'd rebuilt it. It's that car up there. And I, I, I put that in, in an auction here, in America, I mean. And it came straight back to England. Rather bored, I'd already sent it out from England by air freight. Back it came by air freight. It's still owned by the chap, chap who bought it. I'd never been so nervous at a sale. Because quite a lot, there's quite a lot uh, stood on it. Oh, that, that's the wrong word, isn't it? I relied on it rather a lot. <laughs> you, wanted, you wanted it to go through smoothly. I wanted it to go for a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, and then, uh, 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 of course, all these, all these years I was suffering from my accident and I got worse and worse until I'm like this now. There was one other. There's one other story that sort of comes to mind, yeah. which was when I when I was very young. My first book on cars is called Automobiles of the Old Old Automobiles. I've still got somewhere it's a sort of little scrubby little book, small six by four sort of thing. A for Albion, Z for Zulu. You know, it's one of those. So I, so I always remember looking at this book and seeing. The most enormous bends, huge, lovely bends. I said, "God, I'd like that." The museum had gone. The museum was wound up in 1950, and the, the books still headed in as 1965. By the way, nobody knew where it had gone, so I forgot all about it. 
But in, in, in 2008, 15, 20 years ago, I got a telephone call from Christie's. We've been offered this car. We don't quite know what to do with it. Would you take it on yourself? I said, yes, I would. I took it on. We drove it for about, I said, a quarter of a mile. It was terrifying. The engine was as big as that sofa. It was six cylinder, 24 litre. And it sort of, it went bang every telegraph pole. It was really a sort of thing, what one imagines an ancient car is. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it had tremendous history. It was used com com competitively right up into the 30s. I mean, it, it, the history of it's divine. Captured by the Germans, it had gone to a Belgian who bought it from, I suppose, Benz. It was then taken back to Germany, rebodied as a staff car for, for Field Marshal, my God, I forget, I did know the name, I can't remember who it was, who was in charge of the Western Front. I mean, he was going to inspect the troops in this thing. Well, it was sold after the war for 50 pounds. You know, it's a war, sales, and all, everything was sold there. And it was bought by somebody who did go and race at Brooklyn's. And it was very unsuccessful to start with, and some rather good people got it. And it lapped Brooklyn's for 143 miles an hour before they withdrew it. They, being Brooklyn's, said, this guy's going to kill himself. This car, 50 years old, or whatever it was, and it was so bloody quick. It was just, it was, it was the most wonderful thing. So you, you got hold of it? I got hold of it. Yeah. Let's, let's put it another way. Christie's couldn't, they couldn't work out a deal with the man for some reason. Which is why I said, would I have, would I like to have a go? So I rang the man up, and I had the car here in 48 hours. You obviously did a good deal. Well, I wouldn't do a deal at all. I, I said, I'll sell it for you. Which is what, which is what happened. And I split, I, actually somebody else sold and we, we split the profits. Um, wonderful, wonderful car. And that was the last amusing car that I sold. With the exception of my Model T Ford, which I'd been given as a present in America, and I rebuilt it here. I was copying a 1914 World War ambulance, sort of canvas sides, instead of, instead of a cross on the side with antique automobiles, or complete automobilist, you yeah. see. And we, I drove, there's a, there's a, a, a Brighton run, it doesn't go from Hyde Park, but it goes from, I can't think what the park is called, in fact, but this is the next park down. It goes to Brighton for commercials only. So I, I, I drove this thing down to Brighton on, on four different occasions. Totally and utterly reliable, wonderful thing to drive. You now know why Ford succeeded, others failed. Yeah. Um, even then, which was probably about 19, 
2007-2008, my feet couldn't do it. And I had to go. And have you got any of these, these old cars still, Colin? Nope. Do you miss them? Nope. No. One thing I did remember... I've got one old car. Yeah. But I, I've given it to my son. <laughs> it's my father's BMW. Wow. Which he bought in 1935 at the motor show. Oh, so he got it brand new in 1935? Yeah. So it's been kept in the family all that time? Yeah. Oh, that's great, isn't it? No, I'd also... I've driven that car across Africa. Did you? We, uh, I mean, With your father, or...? Oh, no, 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 he died long before. No, no, I used it as a sort of fun car for, for doing <coughs> alcoholic rallies on the continent, basically. Alcoholic rallies? Run by Murray Chandon, Hennessy. Good fun, there'd be about 20 of us would go off. Interestingly, I, I read in your book about you... You organised your own rallies, latterly. I only I only did it once. Okay. And what made you want to organise your own rally? Because I thought I could do it cheaper than anybody else and better, and I did. But I only, I was only going to do it once. Yeah. It was a it's a pain in the ass. Was that the one in Ireland? Yes. Yeah. Very very successful. Entirely by invitation. We had twenty people again. I think all the whole bloody lot came, I asked. You know, it was rather nice. Yeah. Ran ranging from Lord Bamford down to some German I'd met. And they all came. And we had a hell of a time. And this would be for a week or so? Yeah, it must have been, must have been about a week. But the, but the organisation. I should imagine. The cost of running it. I, I made I made money out of it. I mean, I didn't mean to lose lose money. No. But I'm just interested in how much it cost. And put it let's put it like this: it cost a hell of a lot less than other people charging for their rallies. Mm. Which I let the other people know. I said, I know what you're charging. Oh, and I said, well, it cost you this, that. Oh, well, you don't know how you found that out, you know. I think these were all with um, vintage cars. Oh, Lord, yes. No, 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 I was very selective. We only had vintage cars. So, okay, you got to... I say vintage cars, there were people coming in Ferraris. Yeah. So, so, if you've got 20 people, possibly 10 cars, perhaps, what, what happens is some of these older cars, obviously, they're not going to run perfectly. All that we, have a, we have a, a, bra a breakdown ah, car. Right, so that all adds to the cost. With spare tyres and yeah. a mechanic driving it. Yeah. And did you have any breakdowns on route? Not that I can remember. That's good. And it was rather fun. This was my own rally. My children came and drove on it. Oh, did they? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. My daughter, what did she say? With the immortal words. She was aged, I suppose, about 20. She made some particularly stupid remark, which we all keeled over about. She got lost. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember why, but she did. My son, didn't have one daughter, and, and my son went with her, that's right. So, so when that was lost in seven, which again we would buy back if, um, if the man, 
I think we will buy it back because the man said he'll sell it to us. It won't be for me, it'll be for my son, Alistair. Because yeah. it, was, it was sort of slightly custom-made for me, lengthwise. And highly drivable. We had the engine really sort of put together by a Formula One man. So, so in fact, you could over Did you do any of the work on the cars yourself, Colin? Not with my own fair hand, no. No. I'm not a mechanic. No. I'm a delegator. You, you've got it all together. And I say, you, you and you, fix it. And yeah. they would. Yeah. I had the same mechanics for years. I, to, to, I, I used to sort of bleed BRM that they would be underpaid or be cursed. So these are the people just north of here, born? Yeah. yeah. They ran Formula One team. So you've got the best mechanics. Just they got pissed off, they came to me. As they did get pissed off, they came to me. Mm. First to do it was the team manager, or the chief mechanic of Vanwall, yeah. who'd gone to BRM. Unhappy with BRM, so he came to me. He came for me for years. It's been great talking to you again, Colin. Thanks ever so much for coming on. Well, I'm all I'm a bit rusty in my stories because this all happened. It's a terrifying thought, but it happened. How long ago was that? It was thirty years ago, more yeah. thirty, forty years yeah. ago. That's no, really, really. And the mind, the mind isn't as good as it used to be. <laughs> Tell me about the it. content is, but yeah, yeah. some fascinating stories. I, I wish I could stay longer and do more stories with you because there's there's plenty there. Oh, you get you get you get stuff out of me which I'd forgotten about. <laughs> I think we got one or two of those today, didn't we? There are one, there are one or two, but there's one or two which which can't be told. No. Okay. Lovely, lovely talking to you. Bye bye. It's a pleasure. You have been listening to Undercurrent Stories. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share the show link to your friends and family. And if you have 60 seconds, I will be most grateful if you would please rate and review. To hear more episodes, please subscribe to the show and visit undercurrentstories.com. If you leave your email in the link, we will notify you as soon as new episodes are released. Also, check out our social media links, details of which can be found on the show notes. Until next time, this is Bob Wells wishing you all the very best. 